You know her name. Harriet Tubman. But what do you know about her? If you had your typical elementary school education, you often heard of her bravery, how she was called the Moses of her people. You heard the stories of the Underground Railroad, briefly mentioned in some easy-to-read textbook geared toward early reading levels. She was likely the forefront of your school's Black History Month lessons, but she is so much more. Yes, you know she was important, but the extent of her value to history is far beyond that of the caricature painted in most of those books. Her name most recently came up during the campaign to make her the face of the $20 bill, a move that, while mostly lauded, has been postponed with hopes of the new mint occurring in the next five to six years. Of course, there are buildings and schools named in her honor, but Harriet is so much more than a name associated with freedom from a barbaric practice. She was a warrior, seated at the right hand of those in power because they knew Harriet Tubman would win any battle she chose to fight. An abolitionist. A suffragette. A spy. A general. That is who Harriet Tubman was, and she, like Joan of Arc, vowed that she would lead America to its promised potential, the promised land. And she'd be damned before she ever let anyone burn her at a stake. This is God's Favorites, a history podcast. Harriet Tubman, Episode 1. The infant who would become Harriet Tubman would be born into the last decades of American slavery. The ones that would boil into a war between the North and South. The American Civil War is one that attracts a variety of interested historians. There are those who eagerly digest the military strategy of generals and its bloody battles that ran into nearby civilian towns. Some trace their family members to both sides and... Even remember great-grandparents spitting in disgust at the mentions of certain names. That is the first thing about the Civil War I want you to realize. Your older family members had family who remembered. It feels a long time ago, but it really wasn't. America is a young country. The ramifications of this war last, and it draws deep lines over many raw emotions and symbols. My family is from Kentucky, and my mother is the genealogist. Kentucky was another anomaly during this war. She was a border state, meaning it didn't commit to either the Union or the Confederacy. Yet, she was the birthplace of both its presidents, Abraham Lincoln and Jefferson Davis. On both sides of my family, you had dirt-poor farmers who didn't own slaves, and yet many fought for the Confederacy. You also had staunch Unionists. I've read stories of marriages dissolving after women divorced their husbands who ran to fight for the Confederacy. 
But there were plantations in Kentucky. It was a mess. Harriet Tubman also was born in a border state. Maryland. I explain this not to make it about myself at all, but because we are all still so connected to this war. The cliché of brother against brother was very true. So when people say slavery was a long time ago, I want you to think how your parents or grandparents, or if you were lucky enough to have the privilege to speak to a living great-grandparent, they all likely had a connection, at least peripherally somehow, to this story to the war story. Saying this is easy for me to understand comes from a place of my family having access to many years of records. But for so many Americans, this isn't such an easy trace. We don't even know the exact date or year that Harriet Tubman was born. No records of her birth exist. But this is quite common leaving many whose family members were enslaved with dead ends. That is, unless someone turns over a registry where they see their family member counted as property. Harriet believed she was born in 1825, and it says so in some documents. But the math would occasionally change. Her death certificate states she was born in 1815. Her gravestone says 1820. Harriet was never certain of her true age, just a range. But we do know she was born to enslaved parents as Araminta Ross in Maryland. They called her Minty. You'll distinctly remember learning about the Atlantic slave trade as a triangle of some variety, right? When you were in elementary school. Goods were swapped for people who had been taken from Africa. The people in this equation were treated as cattle. So if you're hoping for the it's an issue of states' rights version of this story, um, my response to you is a state's right to what? And depending on your answer, this may not be the podcast you're wanting to listen to. If it is, let's move forward. In most cases, those individuals were taken south or west to work in crop production, predominantly cotton or tobacco. And though many empires across the world and countries declared slavery illegal early on, they were still purchasing goods produced by slavery. The economic impact of the American Civil War was felt globally, especially with cotton. The United States supplied about 80% of Britain's raw cotton, and it was shipped primarily through Liverpool. But as Union blockades worked to prevent the trade of Confederate goods, cotton mills in the UK began slowly going out of business. There was bumbling and fumbling with these merchants working to find workarounds, which in some cases just involved shipping cotton from the South to other ports. The Civil War, of course, would end, and there seems to be this flash of a post credit scene, the end, in the movie of many people's minds. But this wouldn't be the end of the troubles and struggles. But we'll have to revisit politics later on in another episode because now we need to focus on the story of an amazing young woman called Minty. Araminta Ross was born into the practice of slavery, meaning she herself would be enslaved. Her parents, Harriet Green, often called Riet, and her father was Ben Ross. Ritt was a cook at a plantation at the home of an Arthur Pattinson, 
while we know Rit's mother to be named Modesty, all we know that Rit's father is that he was an unknown white male. And there, another ugly truth of slavery. The Pattinson estate would eventually be left to his daughter and son-in-law, a Mary and Joseph Broadus. Mincy's father was a talented man of the woods, a lumberjack and a woodworker who helped oversee slaves who cut timber for Maryland shipyards. Ben had been enslaved by a man named Anthony Thompson. They had nine children, and at some point the two collective properties merged following the death of Broadus. Thompson would eventually give Ben his freedom, but Ross would stay near his family and work for wages. While Ritt and Ben worked hard to keep the family safe as one could, there could not be protection and peace forever. Minty was far too young to be a babysitter. Her age was estimated to be about four or five when a white neighbor, she called Miss Susan, asked for a young girl to be a nanny to an infant. She was ripped from her family and taken to a new place where she sat surrounded by strangers. She worked for a new mother, and at approximately five years old, she herself was far too small to be given the care of an infant. Minty would tote the child around, but if the infant cried, as infants are prone to do, the child's mother would come not to take her child and comfort her. She would strike Minty with her fist. A five-year-old, she was made to learn that if the child wept, she would bear the brunt of the punishment. A child, herself beaten for another child crying. During one day, she would later recall she was beaten five times until the child's aunt came into the room to help console the infant instead of punishing Minty. It was a rare taste of kindness in a cruel world. After multiple beatings, Minty was hurt, weak. She was given back to her family to be nursed back to health. But as soon as she was better, she was whisked right back to the evil woman. In the years that followed, Minty learned how to protect herself in ways a child of her tender age should not have had to learn at all. Even when it was blistering hot, she would lay her clothes to protect herself from blows, and she tried to keep herself as small and invisible as she could. She was still a child when she was caught stealing a sugar cube from a dish during an altercation between her mistress and the mistress's husband. The mistress eagle-eyed in on the child, who out of the corner of her eye she had seen move her hand into the dish, even though she had been engaged elsewhere with her tempers. Tubman remembered the woman had, quote, the rawhide in her hand in an instant. And for the first time in her life, Minty ran. She was tired of being beaten, and she only recalled that she ran until she could no longer, collapsing inside a pig pen and hiding for days. Dehydrated and starving, she would take pieces of the pig slop and fight the other pigs for them to sustain her, until she decided that being beaten by her mistress would be preferable to dying, starving, alongside the pigs. The periods of abuse and neglect continued. The mistress continued to put her in for work that was far too physical for Minty's age and health. She was malnourished, her hair ratted and uncared for. Minty would fight back, but mentally prepared herself for beatings at least once a day. 
Eventually, around the age of 11 or 12, Tubman was sent out for field work as she had frequently fought back against her abusers. In this, she earned some tiny sense of peace. It also provided an education of the outdoors. Minty learned about the landscape and vegetation and what she could survive on. She had learned to set muskrat traps and was later rented out as a field hand to other people in surrounding areas. She would later say she preferred the physical work in the fields and in the forest, and it would become the catalyst to her skills as a survivalist. Minty was growing into a young woman and growing stronger. But there would be an incident that would set her back, but also change her forever. It was doing field work that she noticed the plantation's overseer following after one of the enslaved men who had run toward town for whatever reason, maybe for a break. Knowing trouble was coming, she decided to warn him, racing ahead of the overseer, trying to cut off the path to Bucktown where the men had been headed. The overseer followed the man into a store and was threatening to take him back to be whipped for abandoning his post. The man understandably panicked and began to run, and that's when Minty rushed into the store and the overseer, who had picked up a lead weight to toss at the man, found it intercepted by Tubman, who was severely injured. The field hand ran away, and Minty was rendered aid. The overseer was never held accountable, because in the law's eyes, Minty and her wounds had just been collateral damage, but she was terribly hurt her skull fractured and her head bloody. She was returned to her family for weeks and remained in and out of consciousness, but this injury changes something in her. She would suffer headaches for the rest of her life, but something else changed. She began to have visions, visions of freedom, and Minty believed that God was calling on her to run. Now, at this time, of course, she was still not physically able to do so, but these premonitions, they stayed with her for the rest of her life. Harriet's health had meant she had not been immediately sold, which was a silver lining. But she would eventually have to find employment elsewhere. And this time, it was a man named John Stewart, being leased through the Broaddus family. Stewart operated the lumbering yards where her father worked on behalf of his master, and then eventually himself when he was freed. Stewart hired Harriet to work on his property. She was still enslaved though her father was free, but again, free on paper meant very little. There's not much room for negotiation of prices in a controlled economy. When she wasn't working around Stewart's home, Minty was sent out for days in the forest around Madison, Maryland, and she learned how to live off the land, and she met other freed men. She didn't know the networks she was putting in place or the names she was learning. She was learning the land. Coincidentally, Stuart would also be master to the mother of Frederick Douglass, the famed abolitionist. Neither Douglass nor Harriet spoke badly of Stuart. He was never described as heavy-handed, but both acknowledged he was still a part of the brutal practice of ownership of human beings. Despite this, though, the reprieve from cruelty was appreciated. Border states often felt like a powder keg. It also allowed for relationships to be formed through fraternization. That made white people very, very nervous. Groups would create posses to drag back runaway slaves. 
the ones who made it across the Mason-Dixon line. And sometimes they would even come back with those who were free and take them to the auction block. Harriet Tubman is a fascinating figure because she is a black woman who is remembered in history for her own actions and work. Not once has Harriet been defined by the men in her life, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't have as much information as we would like. We know that Minty met John Tubman, her first husband, in the 1840s, and that he had been born a free man. And there are few details elsewhere. Historians note that a freed man marrying an enslaved woman would not have saved any of their children. Children born of that union would not have belonged to their parents. They would have belonged to Minty's owner. Despite this, Minty and John were married in 1844, and ultimately she would flee. And though she would eventually return for him and urge him to come with her, John Tubman would move on with another woman. There is a power dynamic that is off in the marriage with John's free state. He was more comfortable, so he didn't share a lot of Harriet's anger, nor did he encourage any conversation or thoughts of fleeing. Author Kate Clifford Larson, a Tubman expert, hinted that he may have been working to buy her freedom, but the search for answers is often fruitless. But Harriet's husband could not overpower the voice she believed to be God. She believed God was telling her to run. Tubman was not forgiving of him in most versions of her story, but we know so little about John Tubman. John Tubman was not going to stop Minty from what she truly believed to be the word of the Lord. Tubman would eventually convince two of her brothers to attempt an escape in September of 1849. She had learned that the two, named Ben and Henry, were going to be sold Harriet hired someone, using money that was impossible to come by, to look into the will of her mother's owner to see that they had not been freed as she had believed they would upon his death. She came up with the money on her own. Escaping was not simply the matter of crossing into northern states. It was not Jim swimming across the river in Huckleberry Finn, no. Headhunters could legally capture anyone they deemed to be a runaway, and they could drag you back south, either to your master or to an auction block if you were a kidnapped freeman. It was essentially another terrible layer of human trafficking associated with the existing practice of slavery. Fear kept so many in place. Araminta had become a prophet to the people she worked alongside, and it was making some of them very, very nervous. She prayed for freedom and for her owner's death, which did happen. There were few options that they would ever be freed. She was tormented by visions, either divine or caused by the severe head injury, apocalyptic ones, but she saw that freedom was on the horizon if they just walked out of this new Egypt. Harriet had heard tales of those who harbor you, but as they escaped the plantation on the night as agreed, Ben and Henry became afraid and turned around. But Minty kept on walking. Strangely, it took their new owner, Eliza Ann Broadus, who had inherited them after her father's death, some time to notice Minty was even gone. Minty was in the woods, running, covering herself in foul-smelling herbs to muck and disguise her scent. A newspaper released her description, describing her as five feet tall and, quote, fine-looking. The notice also mentioned her brothers, but they had returned out of fear. 
A $100 reward was issued. Minty couldn't read, but she was assuredly smart enough to know that there was a bounty on her head. She had seen the same story unfold many times before, but a woman running out on her own was rare. But this was not just any woman. She had saved a bit of money, and she had acquired a list of names. Names of people who were allegedly helping. That list of names came after trading someone a fine quilt she possessed and loved. And, unfortunately, the route she took and the names of those who helped her are unknown. But the secrecy was necessary to preserve the Underground Railroad, the lifeline of the escaped. All she would say is the first person to help her was a Quaker lady. Though help was received, she mostly lived off the land and worked to avoid headhunters. With that anonymous help, Tubman crossed the Mason-Dixon line, a line that marked the border states that separated north from south. Her exact path to this day is unknown, though it's believed she followed the Choptank River, which feeds to the Chesapeake Bay area. And once she crossed that line, she was reborn as Harriet Tubman. Those who escaped often changed their names. It was like camouflage. It didn't always help, but it was an extra set of protection like those extra clothes that Harriet wore to pad beatings as a child. So she, for comfort and protection, took her mother's name. She did choose to keep her married name. She described the moment of stepping into Northern Territory to a friend and future biographer Sarah Hopkins Bradford. When I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. Harriet Tubman, still considered enslaved by man-made laws, was free in the eyes of God. But she was alone. She had not taken her husband or her brothers. And that guilt lingered as she made her way to Philadelphia using the network. She would try there to work jobs to make money to buy her brother's freedoms. But the visions continued violently. And Harriet knew what she was being called to do. And that was the most counterintuitive thing for a free woman who had just escaped. God was telling her, Go right back. God's Favorites is a bi-weekly history podcast where we talk about the people who were God's favorites, like the absolute badass that is Harriet Tubman. And sometimes we talk about the people who just thought they were God's favorites. Happy 2023 to everyone. I hope your holiday season was wonderful. We are going on so many adventures together this year. And you can follow along at God's Favorites, a history podcast on Facebook, or come over to my TikTok page at Melissa Fairlady. We have a lot of fun. Come join us. The show is written and produced by me, Melissa. Thanks to everyone who always donates to our Patreon page at God's Favorites, a history podcast. The money collected there allows me to pay for things like music licensing rights, streaming costs, books, and all those other things that go into making a podcast. It ain't that cheap. I still work a regular journalism job during the day, so thank you so much for your patience as we kick back up after the holiday season. 
I used so many wonderful sources for today's work. If you are interested, go purchase our source materials to help support their creativity and their research. Today's sources include Harriet Tubman, The Road of Freedmen by Katherine Clinton, Bound for the Promised Land by Kate Clifford Larson, The Moses of Her People by Sarah H. Bradford. Other information digitally came from the Harriet Tubman Society, the Low Country Digital Library, specifically the article on the impact on the British cotton trade, no author listed there, and as always, my friends at history.com for quick fact checks. Join us in two weeks as Harriet Tubman crosses the Mason-Dixon line again and again and again. See you next time, friends.